You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Misfit, David, Torso and Pinches, Matt, Hangman Strain, Shelby, Andrew, Axios, Richard, Hartman, Skipper, The Sextant, Brian, Cap'n Crunch, Roger the Jolly, Vibran, Artemis Killmeister, Carcos, Rotary Coast, M.D., Lost Again, The Navigator, Doc Lindsay, Pitlock, Ward, Workman, Chairboat, Gunsway Sally, Cannon Monkey, Rum Runner, Madame Anita Sparrow, Hayfay, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. Today we've got something a little bit different. I've never been one to do interviews. Partly because I didn't know if I'd be any good at them, but also in part because there was a very fine pirate-themed interview show already under the crossbones. But then... A few weeks back, an opportunity presented itself that I could not say no to. Esteemed pirate historian Marcus Redeker has teamed up with an award-winning artist named David Lester to create a pirate graphic novel. It's called Under the Banner of King Death. It tells the story of a pirate crew near the end of the golden age of piracy. It begins with a mutiny to overthrow a terrible ship's captain, and then follows this pirate crew through several adventures. I don't want to give anything away, because for fans of real pirates and their stories, there's a lot of fun nods and Easter eggs in there for you to find. The novel is a work of historic fiction, but it's all based in real-world pirates and piracy. It's a fun read, and it reminds me personally of some of the comics I read when I was just a kid, I'm thinking in particular of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle comics. That has a lot to do with the brutality and the art style. For fans of pirates, it's worth a read. But today, I'm going to share with you the conversation I had with Marcus Redeker and David Lester. So, without further ado... (laughs) 
Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. So first things first, I'd like to ask you guys just some general questions about pirates and your personal experiences with pirates. I suppose, first of all, what is it that uh, drew you to pirates as a topic for study and just personal interest in the first place? Well, I actually came to pirates out of an interest in seafaring labor. Mm -hmm. Now, there probably were deeper psychological roots to my study of pirates, uh, I, my mother found a photograph of me dressed as one when I was a kid, mm-hmm. probably for Halloween. I think we probably all of us have something like that. Oh, our, I believe I've got one, too. Yeah. And uh, but I was interested in doing uh, what's called history from below, mm-hmm. meaning the history of ordinary working people who are usually left out of the historical record. And I was looking when I first got to graduate school, I was looking for an instance where legal records would have been generated. Mm. And uh, there was a group of historians in England, uh, E.P. Thompson, Peter Linebaugh, who later became my co-author. They were writing this kind of history using legal records. And I thought that was a good strategy. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, well, pirates created a, a big, big explosion of legal documentation in their own time. Absolutely. And so I set out to study that. And uh, that then led me into the broader history of uh, seafaring labor. So that's how I, I got to it. Wonderful. Yeah. Uh, and that you can definitely uh, feel that on the pages of the book. It's from the point of view of those at the very bottom, the whole way through, which I've got to say, I loved. Uh, David, anything from you on that? Uh, well, you know, aside from the youthfulness of uh, being uh, finding pirates really exciting and uh, the imagery of pirates and the, and the Jolly Roger and and uh, and as well, the easiness of of for Halloween dressing as a pirate and those kinds of things. So um, but I haven't since I was a kid, I haven't really thought that much about pirates. It hasn't been on my radar until I started wa- working with Marcus and Paul on on the books that we've created, and so then it's taken me into a deep dive 
into the world of pirates in a very uh, serious way and uh, and re recognizing the historic uh, connection that that uh, we've done with this book in terms of pirates as workers and seeing them rather than the glorified in a certain way of how they looked and the swashbuckler aspect of it, uh, it's taken it to a different level that I never thought I would uh, be a part of in a sense um, that to see the long connection with workers' rights, workers' history, and the fight against tyranny and exploitation. And so um, for me, it's a it's a kind of a renewal of, of discovering pirates. And so making this book with, with Marcus and Paul has, has been part of that deep dive into, into the world of pirates and how significant they are to the history that we have today. And also the really what I view as a very contemporary story. Um, because when we look at, at, at uh, what pirates went through, they fought uh, for a better world against all odds. They, they, they were at the bottom and it's, it's an inspiring story of rising up from below and to achieve uh, a democracy for a time on board ship. And, uh, and I think we have a lot to learn from that because the, the, uh, the fight against tyranny is still with us 300 years <laughs> Absolutely. later. Absolutely. And, uh, and uh, you know, the, the resistance to tyranny has this long, uh, noble history and, and pirates are a part of that history. So um, that is, you know, the excitement of doing this book and, and, and I'm very grateful to be a part of it. Wonderful. Yeah. Um, you know, you've kind of gone on to answer the next question I was going to ask if there was anything in particular that brought you to doing this project together. Uh, but if there's anything you'd like to add, I'd love to hear it. Well, David mentioned our mutual friend, Paul Buell. Mm -hmm. So when uh, I first contacted Paul, I was very eager to do a graphic novel. Uh, Paul basically found David and said he thinks David would be really ideal for this work because David's, uh, David's previous book, uh, 1919, a graphic uh, history of the Winnipeg general strike of mm -hmm. that year, was in itself a history from below. So Paul knew we were going to be on the same wavelength, and we were. The first graphic novel we did was uh, called Profit Against Slavery, Benjamin Lay, a graphic novel. Benjamin Lay was a, a Quaker who was one of the first to demand not only a to the total abolition of slavery, hmm. but the end to slavery worldwide. Oh, wow. Uh, sure. And so we, we worked on that book together and then it, uh, that went well. And so we just moved on to take on pirates in the next project. Sure. Absolutely. Um, so David, you were the uh, primary artist on the book, correct? That's that absolutely. I did the entire thing with my bare hands. Oh no, it's too <laughs> much work. Matt, uh, he was the only artist, not the primary. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, that's great. <laughs> I do. I I did. I draw. Unlike a lot of uh, graphic novels now, there many uh, people work on computer and and. But I actually draw every single thing with my hands, using mm. a pencil or a pen or and watercolor washes. And the only thing I, I use a computer for is the uh, word balloons and the text in the balloons, and um, and the organization of the images on the page. So the layout of of the book. Sure. Um, but otherwise, yeah, it, uh, and I, um, and the way we put the script together is that Marcus had an outline of the story, and it's based on his book, Villains of All Nations. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, so he had the outline already done and I took it and then made it into a script, uh, essentially like you would a film script. So it's all broken down into scenes. Yeah. And, uh, and though it, each scene would have a description of what occurred uh, is to occur in that scene. And mm -hmm. then the dialogue would be would be, uh, you know, outlined um, underneath. And uh, and I was a bit intimidated because I, I Marcus had, uh, uh, you know, had a couple uh, several other scripts were written based on his book for mm -hmm. film projects. And so I was kind of a little bit intimidated, like <laughs> all these other you know film people did their their version and then sure. uh, uh, do the graphic novel version so it's like but you know you do these things and uh it's a challenge and uh and the process was again i wrote the first draft and sent it to paul and marcus mm -hmm. and they, they gave their changes and uh maybe it text changes scene changes moving things around and uh and then we went back and forth like that over the course of a few months and until we finally got the script in a shape that we all agreed was was ready to go and so then the drawing began and the process took about a year to draw sure absolutely well i've got to say i love it uh something about the art style just feels so kind of raw occasionally brutal there's two or three battle scenes in it that were just a joy to look at on the page mm. so very very good work there um let's move on to the characters within the book I don't want to give anything away about some of the characters, but there are a few who are based on obviously real people. You know, uh, Bartholomew Roberts makes an appearance. Uh, there's, of course, the character Mark, who we won't talk too deeply about in case anybody hasn't read that far ahead yet. Um, but were there any other characters that were specifically drawn from real world people or were maybe inspired by real world events? I'm thinking particularly about the captain, John. And someone who interested me that I, I would have almost enjoyed hearing quite a bit more about the uh, the tavern owner. Uh, was her name Bess? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, there are a number of uh, real people behind the characters, Matt. And mm -hmm. uh, a lot of this was research that I did for a book called Between the Devil and the Deep Blue Sea, mm. which I then expanded in the book on pirates that David mentioned, which we adapted, Villains of All Nations. Uh, I can tell you that... Uh, Salt Beef Bess is a real character. Okay. In the Jamaican uh, Tavern. Now we had to imagine her because this was, uh, we didn't have that much evidence about what she did, but she presided over a pretty rough sailor's bar. Uh, I think it was in Port Royal, mm -hmm. Jamaica. And uh, so, so she became a real character. And then the others are basically, they're based on, people that I met in the course of the research. Mm -hmm. uh, John Gwynn actually takes his name from a slightly later event, which David and I are working on now, a, uh, a graphic novel about the uh, New York Afro-Irish conspiracy of 1741. Hmm. One of the key players there was a man named John Gwynn. Now, there were a great many Black pirates, so we had lots of uh, people to choose from. There was a man named Caesar who sailed with... Uh, with uh, uh, Edward Teach. Hmm. Uh, there were black pirates on almost every vessel. So they were kind of a, a conglomerate model. Certainly. Know. And the same was true of our other character, uh, Reuben Decker, mm -hmm. a Dutch sailor. And, and of course, they were a motley crew. This is something that we really wanted to depict. The, the, the reality of working life for sailors is that they worked with people from all over the world mm -hmm. all the time. And that makes the, the collectivity of piracy that much more interesting. 
because in some ways they had to overcome their cultural differences and decide on common rules, adopt a common flag, uh, find the, their own unity. And, and our argument in this book is that they found that unity through the work they did and the resistance that they carried out against mm. those people, the captains and the merchants who exploited them. So, uh, so yeah, there are, there are lots of real historical people running all the way through this book. It sounds like what you're talking about is an idea that you introduced me to um, in the mini-headed hydra, uh, the, the hydrarchy which I think is a, a fascinating topic. Uh, I'm probably not smart enough to really understand it all, but I could read about it for ages. Well, this, this was a major idea, uh, Matt, in, in the Many-Headed Hydra, the idea that seafaring people organized themselves in, in important and democratic and egalitarian mm-hmm. ways, and that we can find evidence of this over a very broad swath of time. Um, you might be interested to know that this idea of hierarchy has been very appealing to artists. There have been three or four exhibitions worldwide in which artists have depicted hierarchy in one form or another. Mm. This, this is exactly what, uh, what we have happening on the deck of the Night Rambler. It's an instance of hierarchy. Mm-hmm. Uh, that hierarchy infuriated the ruling class of the day who wanted to destroy the, the pirates, not only because they captured uh, the property of the merchants uh, at sea, but because they dared to show that sailors could organize themselves and live in a completely different way. Mm, yeah, it's, uh, it's fascinating stuff. One of the elements of the book that I really dug my teeth into was the language. Uh, for example, uh, the pirates themselves always refer to each other as tars, not something you're going to see in a lot of Disney movies, but as far as I can tell, fairly accurate. You know, it, it meant those who actually swabbed the deck, those at the bottom. Uh, and interesting enough, I don't think a lot of people will be aware of this, but you were talking about a book about the 1919 general strike in Winnipeg. Uh, they talk about a strike in the book, and that is a word that originated on board sailing vessels. But there were a few phrases that I was completely unfamiliar with. For example, bacon face. <laughs> there, was a, there was a character who was essentially a spy in Port Royal on our, uh, on our crew here. What uh, is the origin of the phrase bacon face? David, if I'm not mistaken, you picked that one. <laughs> <laughs> you, 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 you found it. You, you, you go ahead. <laughs> okay. Well, this is this raises a really interesting question, Matt, because one of the things that David and I talked about at great length was how to kind of walk a fine line between creating a social reality of speech mm-hmm. of language on the one hand, but not make it so arcane that people can't understand it. Sure, sure. Uh, so, so what we decided to do was to was to use language and also to use specific phrases mm. that would have been spoken and known by almost all sailors at the time, but then to include a glossary. Mm. So that means that if ever you're reading along in our book and you come across one of these can't phrases, uh, you you basically can go there and find out exactly what it meant. And, and I think the, the, the thing that makes this kind of language valuable is that it does evoke time and place and people. Uh, 
In other words, Absolutely. just different enough from who we are that you get a sense of the, the richness of speech, but also sometimes it's poetry. Mm. So, uh, so insults like bacon face were, uh, were always uh, welcome. Uh, and I must add that one of my favorite parts of this book is that David and I wrote a song together. Mm -hmm. that, uh, that, that is sung. I think it's by Ruby, isn't it? Uh, yes. David? Yes. 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 Uh, about the uh, slave ship captain that they threw over the side of the vessel. Mm -hmm. so, uh, so, so the language is really crucial to the whole thing. And it's uh, it's wonderful. I would love to hear a rendition of that particular shanty song because I kept I kept making up a, a tune for it in my head. It was pretty. Well, catchy. David is a musician, so he can. Oh, do this. <laughs> just got all the talent over there, don't you? <laughs> also, I, 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 I like Bacon Face because it also shows a level of the humor that yeah. I think um, uh, that sailors had at the time. Mm -hmm. I thought that was important because there's a lot of grimness to obviously the uh, brutality of their lives yet there is also a factor of joy including singing and dancing and and of course the pleasures of uh, eating and drinking when they had a plentiful sources for that um, but their usage of language is 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 actually quite uh, creative and uh, it really does uh, give us all a whole other level to who who they were as people and I think it, it it's part of the humanization of them as well mm -hmm. uh, that it's not just the, the historical aspects of what occurred, but it's those little details. And also in the book, I put the little details of, of what they also had to uh, deal with, which is, you know, cockroaches and, and maggots and in their food and uh, these uh, other, you know, rats and, and stuff, which are all part of it. They're, they're not the main part of the story, but they're there in terms of what uh, constituted day-to-day -day life. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you've, you've brought me pretty spectacularly to my next question. I think my favorite scene in the whole book was when they met with Bartholomew Roberts and decided to trade. And you've got a couple of pages that are just a, a description and a visual depiction of many of the items that they would have been trading. Uh, you know, you've got medical supplies, food, gunpowder, that sort of thing. Can you talk about your decision to kind of add this segment that's just a depiction of all the different uh elements on board a ship that they would have traded at the time uh well for me again it was important to give the nuances of that i could have just glossed over it and said oh yeah they traded a bunch of stuff and that was the way it was written in in the script but then i realized uh, as a reader i would want to know what exactly are they trading you know there's obviously going to be certain things uh, you know, butter, alcohol, lard, or whatever. And mm -hmm. there's, uh, I when I researched it, it was like, wow, look at all of these things. I didn't think about the medical supplies. I didn't think about the materials to mend the masks. And and uh, and I thought, I think the reader should know what exactly we're talking about here. It's very visceral in terms of knowing on a day to day basis what they uh, what they needed on board the ship. And so it was part, partly letting the reader into that world of what would life be like on a ship? What, what do you need uh, to do your job as a sailor? And so that was the decision to do the, the very detailed work of drawing those things out. Certainly. The only, the only thing I can say that was missing uh, not too long ago, I believe, they found at the wreck of the Queen Anne's Revenge in North Carolina, 
they found a syringe for the treatment of syphilis, which I think I would have uh, gotten a good chuckle out of seeing that. Uh, but other than that, yeah, it seemed like a pretty comprehensive list of all the all the just little things that people wouldn't think about. So, Sailors, by the way, uh, Matt, uh, I don't know if we put this in the book or not. Sailors uh, called uh, syphilis or any venereal disease. They called that the French pox. Mm. <laughs> So I suppose uh, my my the big question about the book, and I've I've wrangled or wrestled over how to phrase this exactly. Um, you know, pirates could often be a very uh, morally gray subset of the population. Uh, they were often bad guys, but they were often fighting against uh, you know the worst guys. We're talking about the East India Company, the Royal Navy. Uh, the Royal Africa Company, which plays a large part in this. But the crew depicted within the book seems to be fairly uh, righteous. You know, you never get to see them do anything necessarily bad. Uh, even when they're acting violent, it's against who I would consider to be the right people against whom to be violent. Uh, can you talk about your decision to make them the Robin Hoods of the seas, as it were? Well, there is there is a theme in... Uh... Villains of All Nations, which we could not really incorporate into the graphic novel because it's a, it's a little too complex. But essentially, one of the things that is happening as you move through this third generation of pirates of the 17-teens and 1720s, as you move through that time span from about 1716 to 1726, it becomes clearer that the pirates are going to lose. And in the process of that becoming clear, everything becomes much more violent. Uh -huh. So for example, this is after the campaign of hanging bodies up in chains. Uh, pirates began to execute more and more uh, captains of merchant vessels. Uh -huh. There was a man named Philip Lyne who bragged on the gallows that he had killed 26 <laughs> merchant captains. I mean, that's, you know, revenge is one thing. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people felt the need for revenge. They, they, they were fighting against forces that had really damaged their lives. But there is a point at which it crosses over into being something different. Uh, you could argue that that's just war, that that's the nature of war. Mm -hmm. But uh, there were quite a lot of crews, especially in the earlier phase of uh, uh, this particular generation, this third generation of pirates, mm -hmm. who were exactly like the people we depicted. So, uh, so it's true, we are letting them stand for the whole, and we don't deal with that especially bloody last phase of piracy. But uh, I think people can assume that the people we've depicted are pretty accurately rendered. And I think you did a fantastic job with it. Uh, and you're absolutely right. There were uh, very many crews that were, and I think it was an excellent decision to add Bartholomew Roberts in there, who were acting as righteously as possible under their circumstances. Right. However, you said that this was uh, a time when it was clear that they were going to lose. And I really appreciated the fact that not to give away the ending of the book, but so many pirate stories end with a, with a glorious battle or maybe our heroes ride off into the sunset. But this mm -hmm. book ended like most pirate stories actually ended. Uh, mm -hmm did a spectacular job there however there was a little glimmer of hope where there's another crew at the very end talking about everything that they had heard the stories about this crew 
do you guys have any plans to write a sequel to this particular <laughs> book? Well, I would I would say that I think we we are writing the sequel, aren't we, Marcus? With with mm -hmm. our our next book, I think if anything, the idea of putting the hopeful idea in there was not necessarily about sailors or pirate life, but um, about again the resistance to tyranny. Mm -hmm. And so, wherever those people on that ship in the final um, scene end up in this subsequent uh, twenty years or so, where which is where our next book takes place um they would have been they would have heard they they would have known these stories and the, the folklore of these stories and i think it would have uh contributed to to uh, the resistance that we saw later in terms of rebellions uh throughout america to uh oppression and uh, uh of the enslaved and the indentured servants and uh so i think that's a nod to that rather than particularly to uh, pirates, because I think, and uh, Marcus could speak to this, but but our book kind of ends. It it ends at the at at, at the point where where pirates were going down in general. I mean, that's would you say that was the case, Marcus? Yeah, I would, but see, there's another aspect of this which David has just mentioned. We've got to remember that sailors and pirates and really almost all working people in this time period, the early 18th century, lived in oral cultures in which the primary means of communication is not the written word. It is the spoken word. It's the song. And so consequently, we, we decided to end this book with people telling stories about these pirates. And, and we know that these stories were told. In fact, I found in my research, a man who played a very important role in a mutiny uh, off the coast of Africa, as I recall, mm -hmm. uh, in the 1740s, was a valued member of that uprising because he had been a pirate, and he knew how these things worked. He had special knowledge mm -hmm. of how you organize yourself and what you do. So I think um, the the circulation of radical ideas takes place below decks, mm -hmm. takes place on the docks takes place in the taverns, and, and we can't always get a clear glimpse of those, but we do know that they happened. We have found quite a few of them, uh, and we want to convey that this freedom struggle has got a very long and quite continuous history. Fantastic. Absolutely. Well, I believe that's all I've got for you, gentlemen. Is there anything else that you all would like to add? I have something I'd like David to add. Mm. <laughs> what is that? David, tell him about the model ship. Uh oh. Oh, yeah. You know, um, when I'm making graphic novels, um, uh, I tend to uh, make, uh, in some cases, you're going to draw a character for hundreds of pages. So I would make clay heads mm. of them so that I could uh, draw them from all angles, from below, above, sides, and also be able to uh, change the light source with a flashlight. For drawing purposes, I would also sometimes build actual sets to scale, like a film set, as a means for drawing and, and controlling the light source. And But with this book, uh, Under the Banner of King Death, uh, I realized the main one of the main characters is actually an 18th century galleon. And so I, I, I realized I needed to build that, uh, a model of that. And so I found one that was a kit that modeled uh, to scale. And... Uh, uh, very complex and uh it took uh seven months to build and i had uh, <laughs> my partner my partner wendy who uh 
who uh, I, I hadn't built a model since I was 10. And uh, my partner, Wendy, had always wanted to build a model like this. But because of gender roles, she she was always never given the opportunity. And so this was her opportunity to rectify that historical wrong <laughs> in her life. And uh, so we realized after um, in that seven months, we could have sailed a galleon across the Atlantic. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Probably would have been less stressful as well than building that <laughs> model ship. It was well, tiny little pieces and glue and painting and all that stuff. So, um, but it was it felt it gave me a connection to the ship and to the life of, of sailors and pirates to actually be looking at this from a three D perspective up mm -hmm. close and and building it and the guns and and the mast and everything. So that was um, that was um, a big. A big part of making this book as well i would add that when i uh finished the script when we all agreed upon it i my partner and i read it out we acted out the parts out loud um and that was very instructive to see how it did flow and uh and so uh further changes were made after that but that is all the kind of process processes involved in in in, in making this particular book and and these matt are hmm. the hidden labors of creating a graphic novel certainly all the things that go on behind the scene that the reader doesn't really know about mm -hmm. but you can feel it on the page there's a there's a vibrancy to all the characters and how they uh they fit with one another that you can you can see a lot of the the light and darkness and shadow you were talking about moving the flashlight around to get that well it translates very well uh i guess i'd like to end this is just something that's come to me while you've been talking. I don't necessarily know if I even have a question about it, but you've been talking about the fight against tyranny, uh, the fight from below, how that was uh, transmitted through the oral tradition. And I keep thinking about uh, in the later 18th century into the early 19th century, when we've got the age of revolutions, you know, the Haitian revolution, all the Spanish American revolutions, obviously they've been going through the American and French revolutions so much of what happened in Central and South America was based around sailors and privateers, but not so much pirates. And right. I think for whatever reason, because, you know, you don't have a swashbuckling eye patch wearing pirate, you don't hear those stories very often. Mm -hmm. uh, any ideas to tell some of the stories within that time frame about those people? Yeah, there's actually some new uh, research being done on these uh, privateers, Motley Cruz, by the way, mm. extremely multiracial, uh, sailing out of Cartagena mm. in Colombia. So this is a subject that is get, beginning to get, you know, some some significant treatment. But you know, your larger point, you know, this is this is something that is crucial, and I hope that uh, David and I will get there in our series of graphic novels. A lot of the ideas that we see on pirate ships emerge with new force in the late 18th century. Mm. They, they emerge in the American Revolution. Uh, maritime radicalism is a very powerful force in the 1790s when mutinous sailors do things that are actually very similar to what pirates did. So again, we're talking about this uh, almost serpentine tradition of resistance which is not always easy to detect, but I think the age of revolution actually owes something very significant to the uh, period and the people that we have uh, studied and depicted in this graphic novel. I'd like to thank everyone for listening. I'd like to thank everyone who has helped to support the show, all of our patrons on Patreon, 
Everyone who has recommended this show, shared it online or in real life, and everybody who has given us a rating or review, you all help make this show possible. Thank you. The Pirate History Podcast is a member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. If you'd like to check out some of their other fine shows, like The Sit-Down, a Mafia History Podcast, you can do so at airwavemedia.com. Our theme music, as always, was The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, most importantly, thank you for listening.